Would you please stand as we read the Word of God together? Open your Bibles to Psalm 107, Psalm chapter 107. We will not read the entire psalm, we will read verses 1 through verse 16. Again, Psalm 107, 1 through 16. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. For He has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul He has filled with what is good. There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has shattered gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. Pray with me this morning. Our Father, this psalm is a a wonderful reminder that we are the redeemed and that you are the redeemer. And so this morning we give thanks to you because you have redeemed us out of your goodness. It is out of your everlasting loving kindness that you have chosen to redeem us. We thank you that you have delivered us from the power of darkness, from the penalty and the power of our sin, that you have drawn us to yourself with cords of loving kindness, even when we did not want you, O God, you sought us and you drew us and you changed our minds and our hearts. You gave us the gift of repentance whereby we saw sin as you see sin and turned away from it and turned in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that this morning, to us, the Lord Jesus Christ is precious, and his blood is precious. And Father, we pray that you would once again remind us and overwhelm us of the great truth of our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, there is no other truth in all of the Bible that is as precious to us as Christ. And even as we have just sung, we understand that all of this is for the glory of God. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name be the glory, both now and forevermore, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Kim. And now I ask you to open your Bibles once again to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We will be looking specifically at verse 7 this morning. The title is Spiritual Blessings from God, Part 3, Redemption. I'm going to read, however, verses 3 through 7 so we can see how verse 7 relates 
to the previous verses that we have already studied thus far. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In the 14th century, in the land that we now call Belgium, there was a duke by the name of Reynald III. His younger brother Edward led a successful revolt against him and removed him from his throne. But instead of killing Reynald, he built a room for him in a castle. And he promised his brother that he could regain his title and his property as soon as he was able to leave the room. Now, this would not be difficult for most people, since the room had several windows and a door of normal size, none of which were locked and none of which had bars. The problem was Reynold's size. He was very overweight. So all that he would need to do is to lose weight, and then he could regain his title, have his freedom, and regain all that had been taken from him. But Edward, his brother, knew him very well, and so every day he would send to Reynold a large variety of delicious foods. And instead of dieting his way out of prison, Reynold grew larger and larger. When Edward was accused of cruelty, he said, My brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he wants. Reynald stayed in that room for ten years. And he wasn't released until his brother Edward died in battle. But by that time, Reynald's health was ruined and he died within a year. He was a prisoner of his own appetite. And beloved Reynald III is a picture of us before we are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, we have been studying one of the richest passages in all of the Bible. As I have said many times now, verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence in Greek of 202 words, and it is Paul's outburst of praise to God for our salvation. The great emphasis is not on what we do for God, but upon what God has done for us. And so far, we have seen the sovereign selection of the Father in verses 3 through 6. In verse 3, Paul states that God the Father has given us every spiritual blessing that he has to give and then in verses 4 through 14, Paul explains what some of those spiritual blessings are. The first spiritual blessing we have from God is in verse 4, namely that God the Father has chosen us for salvation before the foundation of the world. The second spiritual blessing we have from God is in verse 5, namely that in eternity past, God predetermined our eternal destiny. He predestined to adopt us as his children. Our great salvation then is the result of the sovereign, unconditional, uninfluenced election and predestination of God the Father. In other words, our salvation is by God's grace alone and it is for the glory of God alone, which is why Paul ends in verse 6 the way that he does, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Sola gratia, soli deo gloria. It's grace alone and it is to the glory 
of God alone. But now in verse 7, Paul shifts his focus to the person and work of Christ. This is Christus alone. If the emphasis in verses 3 through 6 is on the work of the Father, the emphasis now in verse 7 going all the way down to verse 12 is on the work of the Son. The work of the Son. Now, beloved, in this little unit, verses 7 through 12, there is a tremendous amount of gold. And we are going to mine it very slowly. And so this morning we are only going to look at verse 7. The central idea of verse 7 is redemption. And we're going to see four great truths about redemption, all of which are listed for you on the back of the bulletin. The nature, cost, benefit, and basis of our redemption. So point number one, the nature of our redemption. Notice how Paul begins verse 7, in him. This little prepositional phrase is literally in whom. The word whom is a relative pronoun, and the antecedent of this pronoun is back in verse 6, the beloved. And as we said last time, the beloved refers to whom? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who is the beloved of the Father. The Father loves the Son. He is his beloved Son. And that little phrase at the end of verse 6, in the beloved, is a segue then to verse 7. Where again the focus begins to shift very sharply upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now have you noticed how many times already Paul has referred to Jesus Christ? Back in the very first verse, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Also in that very first verse, Paul identifies the Ephesians as those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, Paul says that grace and peace come to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, Paul identifies God as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Also in verse 3, Paul says that God the Father has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. In verse 4, God the Father chose us in Him, that is, in Christ. In verse 5, God the Father predestined to adopt us through Jesus Christ. And then again in verse 6, God the Father has graced us in the Beloved. This passage is saturated with Christ. Christ is everywhere. And so far, Paul, even though he has referred to Christ a lot, has really only hinted at the work of Christ. But now, in verse 7, he is going to give his sharp attention to the work of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. In him... We have, present tense, redemption. Right now, we have redemption. Right now, the Lord Jesus Christ is our Redeemer, and we are the redeemed. Right now is Paul's emphasis. The key term here, of course, is redemption. This is the fourth major theological truth that Paul has praised God for in Ephesians 1. The first is election, the second is predestination, the third is adoption, and now the fourth is redemption. Now, I think it's fair to say that there is a lot of confusion about what redemption means. That's why we're calling this the nature of redemption. Redemption is a familiar word with an unfamiliar meaning. Let me illustrate some of the confusion to you. We often hear about someone saying this, that so-and-so redeemed himself. Have you heard that? Now, I'm a sports fan, and so I listen to sports, and I watch sports, and I hear that kind of language all the time. All the time. 
And the idea is this, that an athlete at one point in time performed very poorly or made some very major mistakes, but at some point regained himself, if you will, began to perform better, overcame those mistakes, and thus he redeemed himself. One sports blog this past week said this, Has Tony Romo redeemed himself in Dallas? He's the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. His last game, he continued to play after he had a broken rib and a punctured lung. And so the question is, has he redeemed himself? Did his play after the injuries somehow compensate or or overcome all of the mistakes in the past or the inadequate performances of the past? Now, beloved, that is not what redemption means. The English word redemption, it comes from a Latin word that means to repurchase or to buy back. Now, like me, you may remember as a kid, I used to go to the grocery store with my mom and we would take those empty Coke bottles and we would sell them. The grocery store, they would buy them back, they would redeem them, and that's more of the idea. Let me tell you what redemption means in the Bible. It is to set someone free by payment of a ransom. Did you get that? That's what redemption means. It is to set someone free by payment of a ransom. It is to deliver a prisoner or a slave by payment of a ransom. It is estimated that in Paul's day there were some... 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, and it was possible to liberate one of those slaves out of their slavery by buying them. And that is redemption. So in election, God chose to save us while we were running away. In predestination, God decreed to make us his children even while we were his enemies. And in redemption, God has delivered us from slavery by buying us with a ransom. But now we ask this. To what were we slaves to? Redemption assumes slavery. The one who is redeemed was a prisoner or a slave. And so to what or to whom were we slaves? Listen to Jesus himself in John 8, 34. Everyone who commits sin. Have you committed a sin? Please raise your hand if you have never committed a sin. Jesus says everyone who has committed sin is the slave of sin. Once a person commits a sin person is a sinner. As a sinner, that person is a slave to sin. And so what the Bible teaches is this, not only are we born sinful, we are born enslaved to sin. Now before Adam and Eve sinned, listen, they had the ability not to sin. Before Genesis chapter 3, they had the ability not to sin, but after they fell, they lost that ability, and so did we in Adam. We inherit our sinful natures from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so as sinners, we are unable, listen, to not sin. Unable to not sin. We can't not sin. As Jesus says, we are the slaves of sin. We are in the chains of sin. We are in bondage to sin. It is our master. It owns us, and we are owned by it. And so I ask you this question. Do sinners have, then, a free will? That is a question that it gets all kinds of attention, doesn't it? Do sinners have a free will? And the answer is yes and no. It requires some explanation. As sinners, we are still free to make choices. We are not robots, but we are only free to choose what we desire. And the only thing that we desire as sinful creatures is sinful things. We still possess a will that is still there, even though we have sinned and fallen. But again, the will is enslaved to sin, and so we are only free to make choices that are in accord with our fallen 
nature. Let me illustrate it like this. If there were a lion in here this morning, and thankfully there's not, but if there were a lion in here this morning and we placed before that lion two bowls of food, one bowl being filled with salad and the other bowl being filled with meat, which bowl of food do you think that lion would eat? It's going to eat the meat. Why? Because it is a carnivore. It is its nature to eat meat. And that is how it is for the sinner. It is the nature of the sinner to sin, to always be disposed and bent towards sin, and therefore his choices are always in accord with the sinful, fallen nature that has enslaved him. So like Reynald III, we are slaves of the appetites of our flesh. We are only free to choose whatever sin we want. We are free to pick our poison, but we may not pick anything else because that would be inconsistent with our fallen will. Now, one writer says this in speaking about redemption. This is very important. He says, quote, In every case, the conception is the delivering or the setting free of a man from a situation from which he himself was powerless to liberate himself or from a penalty which he himself could never have paid, end quote. So the idea is this. The one needing redemption was not able to redeem himself. It implies, again, a slavery. Someone is captive. They are bound. They cannot liberate themselves. They cannot free themselves. They cannot deliver themselves from what has bound them. But the great truth of Ephesians 1.7 is that even though we could not redeem ourselves... In him we have redemption. Christ is our redeemer. He is our emancipator. He is our liberator. In John 8, 46, Jesus said, So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And he said that just a few verses after saying, The one who commits sin is a slave to sin. So the freedom that he is speaking about is not some sort of worldly freedom. It is talking about a freedom from the bondage of sin. Over two years ago, some American hikers were arrested in Iran, and they were convicted of spying. They spent the last two years in an Iranian prison. That is until this past Wednesday when they were released. You might have seen the news story. The families of the two men said it was the best day of their lives to be reunited together. Iran agreed to free the men, listen, on one condition, money, one million dollars. So their deliverance wasn't free. Their freedom from the Iranian jail wasn't free. It involved a ransom price, one million dollars. Beloved, the same is true of our redemption. There is a price. There is a cost. And so what is the cost? That brings us to point number two. Through his blood. One of the things that I love to say is that the grace of God is free. We celebrate the free grace of God and the fact that salvation and eternal life is the free gift of God. It is for us. But it is not free for Christ. In fact, it is very costly for Christ. The blood of Christ, says Paul, is the cost of our redemption. Jesus came into this world to do many things. He came to cast out demons, to cleanse the lepers, to open the eyes of the blind, to unstop the ears of the deaf, to feed the hungry, to raise the dead. And yet the primary reason that he came was to offer his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to pay a price. He came to lay down his life. He came to shed his blood. So listen very carefully. 
the cost of our redemption was not the literal bodily fluid of Jesus, namely his blood. There was nothing magical about the blood of Jesus that somehow redeemed us in and of itself. We're not redeemed by the literal bodily fluid of Jesus. That is not what Paul is saying. The blood of Christ that Paul refers to here speaks of, listen carefully, sacrifice. It's the language of sacrifice. It should take your mind back to the book of Leviticus. It is a book that is full of blood. Blood sacrifice. It further denotes the violent, bloody death of Jesus. Do you understand that Jesus did not die peacefully? Do you understand that Jesus didn't die by just falling asleep and then just dying? He died a bloody, horrific, violent death. One very important dictionary defines blood this way. The interest of the New Testament is not in the material blood of Christ but in his shed blood as the life violently taken from him. Like the cross, the blood of Christ is simply another and even more graphic phrase for the death of Christ. And so again, when you read the blood of Christ, it's not talking about the literal bodily fluid within his body that flowed through his veins. It is a picture of his death, of the bloody violent, horrific, sacrificial death of Christ. And so it is not the literal blood of Jesus that redeems us. It is not even the literal cross of Jesus that saves us. It is what Jesus did on that cross, namely shed his blood, dying a violent death for us. And that death, beloved, was the ransom price. That was the cost. Redemption is free to you and me, but it was not free to Christ. It cost him his death. It cost him his blood. It cost a sacrifice on his part for us. I love what 1 Peter 1 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The cost of redemption for those two American hikers was $1 million, and the cost for our redemption is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that blood is precious. Is it precious to you? Is Christ precious to you? Do you understand that he is the only way of salvation, the only way of redemption, the only way to be delivered from the enslavement of your sin? He is the only way to be made right with a holy God. If you do, then he is precious and his blood is precious to you. Under the old covenant, when the animals were sacrificed, their, their throats would be slit. It was violent, and the blood would shed. It would be poured out everywhere. And the same was true of the sacrifice of Christ. His blood was shed. It was violent. It was a sacrifice. Hebrews 9.12 says, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Our redemption does not come from an animal. It comes from Christ who died like an animal, like the lamb, as Peter talks about, a lamb that is unblemished and spotless, who shed his blood for us. So when Christ went to the cross, he was sacrificed like a lamb, wherein he paid the price of our redemption, and he delivered us from the slave market of sin. We're emancipated, we're liberated, we're freed. The Son of God has made us free indeed. So we've been bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ. Now, it is true that we have been liberated. But our emancipation from sin 
from the slave market of sin does not mean autonomy for us. In other words, when Christ redeemed us out of the slave market of sin by the cost of his own blood, he did not do that so that we would then do whatever we want with our lives. We are not liberated by Christ to live for ourselves. We are not free then to do whatever we want. We are freed from sin, listen to this, to become slaves of Christ. So there is, yes, an emancipation. Yes, there is a liberation. We have been delivered from the bondage of sin so that we would have a new master, so that we would have a new owner, so that we would have a new Lord, Jesus Christ. So all men and women in this world are, are slaves of really one or two things. Either they are the slave of their own sin or they are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which one are you? Are you owned by sin? Or are you owned by Christ? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for just a moment. I want to remind us of the language of Paul in this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he speaks this way a lot in the New Testament. And he's talking about sexual immorality. There were people in the church at Corinth who were committing sexual sins with their body. And Paul is addressing that. And so he says in chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Christian, do you understand that you do not belong to yourself? You have been bought, he says in verse 20. You have been bought with a price. You have been emancipated from sin to belong to Christ. Christ now owns you. You may not do what you want. Christ is your master. He is your Lord. He is your sovereign. You belong to him. In chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing literal slaves. As I mentioned, some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Some of them were converted and in the Corinthian church. And Paul is addressing that right here in chapter 7 in verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. If you are literally a slave, Paul says, and you become a Christian, guess what? You are free. You are free. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You are the slave of Christ. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Christian, understand that this morning. You do not belong to yourself. You are not your own. You are not autonomous. You do not have the right to live in this world doing whatever you want. You belong to Christ. He bought you. He owns you. He loves you. He cares for you. And He is the Lord and the Master of your life. I love what Charles Wesley said in the hymn, Man Can It Be? He said this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke... The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what we do when we are liberated. We follow Christ because then we become his slave. So now we ask, what is the benefit of our redemption? We've seen the nature of our redemption and the cost of our redemption, but what is the benefit of our redemption? That's point number three, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, on a technical note, this is what grammarians call an appositive. And what an appositive is, is simply giving a phrase that restates a previous phrase. It restates it by explaining it. The previous phrase is this, we have redemption. What does it mean to have redemption? It means this, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
So right now, as those who have redemption in Christ, we are those who have the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, we understand that Christ gave himself as a ransom to buy us out of the slave market of sin, but let me ask you this question. To whom did he make the ransom? To whom did he pay the ransom? Here is what some people say, that Christ made a ransom to the devil. It's called the ransom theory. The idea is this, that on the cross, God the Father delivered his son, Jesus, to Satan to pay a ransom to Satan to liberate those whom Satan had taken captive. But Christ didn't pay a ransom to Satan. He paid the ransom to whom? To God. Listen to Hebrews 9.14 very carefully. Christ offered himself to God. It's a ransom that was paid to God. Now, why in the world would Christ need to give a ransom to God? Well, for the forgiveness of our trespasses. If we are going to have the forgiveness of our trespasses, then Christ would have to pay a ransom to God. Now, listen very carefully. God cannot simply will our redemption into being. God cannot merely pronounce us redeemed by divine fiat. God cannot forgive our sins by overlooking them and by dismissing them. He cannot do that. In our country, the President of the United States has the power of presidential pardon. An example of this is in 1974 when President Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon for his crimes in Watergate. And the way the president did this was simply by dismissing the crimes. Just dismisses them. Beloved, that is not how God forgives us. God does not dismiss our sins. Why? Because he is just. He is just. And because he is just, he is obligated to punish sinners. Nahum 1.3 says that God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. God is not only a God of justice, his justice is inflexible. God is bound to punish sin. Sin is an offense to him. It is an affront to him. It violates him. Therefore, he cannot overlook sin. He cannot dismiss sin. He cannot just let it go. If he were, listen, God would be unjust. God can't simply forgive us because he is compassionate, because he is good. Do you realize that if God were just to dismiss our sins, that he himself would sin? It would be a sin on God's part if he were just to dismiss our sins because it would violate his own justice. Following World War II, there were the infamous Nuremberg trials in which Nazi, vile Nazi war criminals were brought to justice. Now, just imagine that during those war trials in Nuremberg that all of these wretched people and all of the crimes against humanity that they had perpetuated, just imagine that it was decided, we'll just dismiss, we'll just dismiss them. That would be unjust. We cannot tolerate that. And the same is true of God infinitely more because... God is holy, God is righteous, and the sins against him are infinitely worse than any sin that man commits against man. And so God requires a payment for sin, just as our law requires a payment when there is a crime that is committed. And what is the payment that God requires of our sin, beloved? 
The wages of sin is death. The soul who sins, says Ezekiel, will die. God must punish us for our sins. His holy character, His holy law demand it. Anything else would be unjust and it would be sinful on the part of God. Now please notice the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 1.7, trespasses. What is a trespass? I remember as a kid going to a pond that I used to go to with some of the neighborhood friends and there was a sign, no trespassing. We know what that means. It is a deliberate misstep. And that's what we have done. It is a deliberate misstep from the path of God. God says, go this way, and we deliberately go the other way. It is a deliberate violation of God's command to go our own way, to do our own thing, to be our own God, as it were. And please notice that the word is plural. We have not just trespassed once, but many times. Many, many times. And for each single trespass, the penalty is death. And so not only do we deserve death, we deserve it many, many times over for every single trespass that we commit against the Holy God. So now we ask, how in the world is the Holy God of the universe who is infinitely offended by our sin, whose justice is inflexible, who is bound to punish sinners, how in the world will He ever forgive sinners? How can He forgive sinners? Ephesians 1.7 tells us Christ as our Redeemer paid a ransom to God. He died to redeem us. And so, listen, when God forgives us, He is not simply dismissing our sins. He's not treating our sins lightly. He's not sweeping them under the rug as if they are not that serious. That is not what He is doing at all. Beloved, here's what God did. God took all of your sins the things that nobody knows about but you and God. And he placed them upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, while he was upon the cross. And God in heaven poured out his wrath upon Christ in your place. God the Father treated God the Son as if he were you. And so if you ever think that God takes sin lightly, look at the bloody, violent death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins were transferred to Jesus. He died as our substitute, the just for the unjust. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, there's good news. There was the shedding of blood by Christ for us. So Jesus gets justice and what we get is forgiveness. That's the benefit of redemption. We get forgiveness. And do you know what forgiveness is? Here's what this word means here that Paul uses for forgiveness. It means this, to send away. You know what I want with my sins? I want them to be sent away. Don't you? Because Jesus in John 8 told certain people that you will die in your sins. The only hope is that somehow the sins that we have committed that are so numerous that we could never count them, that they would somehow be sent away. And that is what Paul is saying God has done with our sins through Christ. They have been sent away. Maybe the best illustration of this is Leviticus chapter 16. I said a minute ago, Leviticus is a book that is full of blood. It is a book all about sacrifice, blood sacrifice of animals on the part of sinners. In Leviticus chapter 16, you have a day called the Day of Atonement. This was an annual day for the nation of Israel, and on that day, the high priest had two goats. One of the goats, he would slaughter it. 
He would take its blood and he would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And this is to remind us that the wages of sin is what? There is no atonement without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. God demands death. And that was portrayed in the death of that goat. But there was a second goat. And this goat wasn't slaughtered. The priest would take his hands and he would place his hands upon the head of the goat. And you know what that symbolized? the transferal of the sins of Israel to the goat. And then the priest would send the goat into the wilderness, never to come back. That is the picture here. Your sins have been sent away. You say, how far away? Well, according to Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, have you ever measured that? You can't. It's infinity. Your sins are gone. Because God, out of love for us and mercy, took our sins, placed them upon Christ, transferred them upon Jesus, and He absorbed the full weight of the wrath of God in our place. One of the great promises that Jeremiah gives of the new covenant is this, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What a wonderful promise. On the night before Jesus died, he instituted the Lord's Supper and concerning the cup, he said in Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood. My blood. Get that word, the same word we've talked about earlier. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So what is forgiveness? It is the permanent removal of our guilt. It is the permanent removal of the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Why? Because of the great redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the ransom price to God for us so that we could have the forgiveness of sins. And therefore, God no longer counts our sins against us. We are no longer condemned, but we are justified, even though we are guilty utterly guilty, we are clean before God. Now finally, why in the world would Christ do this for us? Why would he ever do this for us? Point number four, the basis of our redemption. Notice the last phrase in Ephesians 1, 7. According to the riches of his grace, Christ did this for us because God's gracious. Isn't that wonderful? Christ didn't do this because you deserved it or because you had earned it or because you were good enough. Christ did this because God is gracious. That's the basis of our redemption. And how much grace does God have? He is rich with grace. The riches of His grace. There is the trespasses, plural, and then there is the riches of His grace, plural. The riches of God cannot be measured. They cannot be weighed. You can't say this is how long His grace is, this is how deep His grace is, this is how heavy His grace is, because it is infinitely rich. We cannot measure it. We cannot weigh it. Maybe think of it this way. There is, more grace of, there is more grace in God than there is sand in the desert. There is more grace in God than there is water in the ocean. There is more grace in God than there is air in the atmosphere. And listen to this. There is more grace in God than there is sin in us. That is glorious. That is rich, rich grace. And so one final question. What is the worst thing you've ever done? Please don't say it out loud. But what is the worst thing you have ever done? It may not take you long to find that. But whatever it is, according to Ephesians 1, 7, God's grace is greater. 
In fact, not only is God's grace greater than the single worst thing you've ever done, it is greater than all of the trespasses that you have ever committed and combined them. God's grace is greater than our sin. And so the basis of our redemption in Christ is the riches of the grace of God for which we praise God. Well, as we conclude, if you would take your bulletin and let's consider briefly the meditation theme, which is redemption in Christ. We have four points to consider. Number one, sin is a violation of God's holiness and righteousness, and it must be punished. Number two, Christ offered himself as our sacrifice to redeem us from the power and guilt of our sin. Number three, as the redeemed, we now belong to the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then number four, our redemption in Christ is solely due to the riches of the grace of God and not to anything that we have done or ever could do. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God of grace. And we thank you that you are rich in grace. That you have a wealth of grace. And that grace is displayed so extravagantly by virtue that your son Jesus would die on the cross in our place, that he would be our redeemer, that he would be willing to pay such an infinitely high cost, and that he in turn would give to us the free gift of eternal life and the free gift of the forgiveness of sins. Father, we are are so painfully aware of our guilt and our sinfulness. But Father, I pray that you would make us even more aware of your forgiveness. That you do not count our sins against us. That we are not condemned but forgiven. And all of this is by your grace. We thank you for the blood of your Son. It is precious to us, O God. We thank you for delivering us out of the slave market of sin where we would have perished in our sins. And we thank you that we now belong to a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be faithful slaves of Christ as long as you give us time in this world. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.